Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Kickstarter news and special previews. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. And welcome to Rex Factor, where we are not reviewing anybody, or perhaps we are reviewing. We are reviewing the Rex Factor listeners. Yes, where we thank everyone from Alfred in London to Elizabeth <laughs> in Zambia. Going for some of your favourite Rex Factor names there. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Alfred to Elizabeth, but... Um, from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. In all different places. Thank you, we got lost. <laughs> um, because our Kickstarter campaign which was running all through August and which we probably bored you incessantly by really yes. just posting about and podcasting about all the time. Apologies. We were looking to raise £15,000 to fund uh, the making of a pilot episode of Rex Factor, the animated show, where Ali and I uh, will come to life in cartoon form uh, in the pilot reviewing the reign of Richard III. Yes. And remarkably, not only did we succeed... In raising the £15,000. Ahead of schedule. Well ahead of schedule, but we actually got to over £17,000. It was absolutely superb. It was uh, it was an amazing thing to do. Never done anything like that before. Ali was on uh, BBC Essex a couple of times. I was in uh, Leicestershire for the Battle of Bosworth. Yeah. I was uh, going round, well, anywhere that I was, distributing beer, beer mats. mats. Yeah. I mean, the Chelmsford city centre is absolutely oh, flooded with them. Awash with Rex Factor beer mats. Um, and just generally irritating everyone on social media. We've <laughs> had our best ever response on show, social media, though, to that car parking mm. by a country mile. By which Ali means car park king. <laughs> uh, um so thank you everyone who's shared stuff on so on social media. It must have been so irritating for you at times. Uh, but if you didn't contribute but did like or did share, mm. you have massively helped us. Honestly, just because you might have shown it to someone who did contribute. So it will. So thank you very very much. Yes, incredible. We had over three hundred people that backed. Yeah, uh, the kickstart in the end was absolutely amazing. So we're so so thankful to everybody, as Ali said, for putting up with us talking about it all the time, donating money, liking it, telling mm. your friends. The fact that people were getting in touch and saying they were excited about it was lovely because yeah. it you know made us feel like it wasn't a folly. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I we made a huge mistake. <laughs> um, but we have recorded a video thank you with the people uh, from Tin Mouse, Tom and Mike. Yep. Uh, you can watch that. That is, we had a bit of fun with that, really, because it was a bit of release. I think after <laughs> an anxious August, thinking, "Oh, we're we going to do mm. this or have egg on our face," uh, and so you can watch that to see us saying thank you. But this is just personal thanks from me and Graham mm. for to all of the hardcore Rex fans. Now, uh, if you want to find out more about Rex Factor, the animated show, you can still go to Rex Factor hyphen theanimatedshow.co.uk sign up for updates there and you get to see sort of uh, artwork and stuff like that and when new stuff is done Tom does news Tom from Tin Mouse Animation does newsletters and 
yeah. updates and things like that. So. so you haven't missed the boat at all. If you want to, if you've just tuned into Rex Factor and thought, "Oh, this sounds good," yet yeah, still sign up because mm. there's still that's still the way to get the info. Uh, but what will be happening next is that uh, we'll be going through the process of uh, sending everybody who did back us uh, the various rewards. I will be setting my alarm clock. Uh, that's fortunate. there it is. Good timing. Who are you uh, calling now? Um, to call people all over the world to say thank you at uh, if they backed above seventy. Yeah, a certain level. Yeah. Um, so if you if you are expecting a phone call, we'll arrange that. Uh, and just generally, um, getting a sore tongue from licking postage stamps. Mm. And I think uh, I think it's April next year that I think they're yeah. they're targeting. But twenty eighteen, yeah. we'll be having the. Uh, the animated show, hopefully going live. We've got a couple of people, which I haven't sent off yet, who won posters. Ah, oh, yes. So those will be uh, those will be heading your way. And uh, yes, also, of course, we are back. Well, we never stopped podcasting. No. So we did do the James IV episode yeah. during the Kickstarter campaign. It was really more the case that actually it was a big episode on James IV. And August is a slow episode. month. We're both away on holidays. Yeah. So we didn't actually stop Rex Factoring. It no. was just that it was a combat. Well, yeah. maybe it was a good month to yeah. have because we were quite busy. But we'll be back in the thick of the action. Um, we have recorded uh, tonight a new special episode on uh, the Vikings in Ireland. That was full of colour. Full of colour, particularly red. <laughs> You'd uh, expect it to be green. Well, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, so if, you're, if you've got Privy Council access to that, you'll be looking forward to that soon. If not, you can get it for a mere $2. Uh-huh which will be uh, very, very nice. And then we will be back with the Scots, with James V, and we're getting right to the end of the Scots now. We've mm. just got three more monarchs mm. to review in Scotland. I know who two of those are. Mm. Are you including James V in that? I am including James V. I know who all of them are. <laughs> there we go. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I just, I, I, it's really tricky to um, sound uh, convincing enough, but I cannot get across... How thankful I am to the to Rex fans, because yeah. it's just it's. I mean, I want to say it's so unnecessary. <laughs> it's so good. What of have you, you to, all done? It's so good of you to be so supportive. It's mm-hmm. really absolutely mind blowing. It's very very lovely. We were. I mean, I didn't. I didn't think we were going to make. I didn't. I thought we were going to have to put in. Yeah. So I thought we got to ten thousand. I thought that would be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I had a panic after the initial excitement, and we um hit a couple of grand I thought we should have done tried to finance mm. uh seven minute sections for mm. um five grand a pop but no we're there we know we've got we we're at because that would have been rubbish if we'd got to 14 minutes and <laughs> not had any money where it ends <laughs> yeah and he's founded a what he's founded a what <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah, so it's just great that we know we've got the money now. We're going to make a pilot. You're going to see it, and it's all thanks to you. Uh, so thank you very, very much. Now, because you've been waiting a while for uh, an episode, and it took me a bit of time to edit the special, and then if you don't get the special, you have a bit more of a wait for James V. Mm. Uh, something else we thought we might do, uh, which we did earlier in the year, is give you some previews of some of the stuff you could be listening. So we've been mm. doing sort of special episodes mm. every few months. As I say, you can get them each for two dollars or if you become a privy councillor at five dollars or above you get uh, automatic access to, to all of them all the ones that have been all of the ones that have been and are to go um so we're going to give you uh, a few previews from some of our 
special episodes. Uh, so first up, we've got a little bit of an introduction to the great Victorian engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Big hat, fag on, standing by chains. What a name, by the way. It is a great name, and we'll come to that mm. uh, a little bit, actually. He's born on the 8th of April, 1806, in mm-hmm. Portsmouth, and he's the son of Mark Isambard Brunel and Sophia Kingdom. So, oh. quite unusually, uh, the Kingdom, his middle name, is actually taken from his mother's surname. But it's not a double-barreled surname. No, but it's not double-barreled. Um, and Isambard apparently seems to have been something of a family name, so confusingly, his father actually preferred to be known as Isambard rather than Mark. But obviously, for historians, oh, he's Mark. He's Mark. <laughs> yeah, poor chap. I mean, Isambard is a very unusual name. I've never heard of any other. No, Isambard. other than these chaps. Yeah, find them in the Brunel family. He's only about five foot three inches tall. Oh my word! I was going to ask that because the only image I have of him, and I know you're probably going to flash up an image, <laughs> is of him standing in front of enormous chains with a top hat and a cigar. Have you? Yes, that that that's the one. Yeah. I always thought they were enormous chains, but actually they're just like a necklace or something. <laughs> <laughs> they are, in fairness, uh, incredibly enormous chains, but he is actually a small man. He's ah. nicknamed uh, Little Giant. What? Oh, yeah, got it. The stature of his, mm. his works and his mm. character. Um, but yes, obviously, so we've got this famous photo up. He's got his stovepipe hat, mm. cigar in his mouth, hands in his, uh, his pockets. Well, sort of in his pockets. Yeah, I didn't high trousers. Yeah. <laughs> he's expecting a flood with those, I think. And he's standing in front of these uh, huge chains of uh, his great ship that he was building. And this is a really great image in terms of defining the sort of industrial yeah. mid-Victorian age of enterprise and can yeah. do anything and build anything and rule the world. Absolutely. Though, mm. it, though strangely, it's looking left, which looks like he's looking back. You know, normally you have the right going forwards. Yes, although I suppose from his perspective, he's looking right. Oh, God, I hate perspective. <laughs> oh, oh, it's t- twisted my melon. What if he was looking in a mirror? Oh. Anyway, um, he's born less than six months after the Battle of Trafalgar. Right. And he's nine years old when we have the Battle of Waterloo. So this is a point where Britain emerges from the P- Napoleonic Wars. Mm. Um, we start to see it as a real leading superpower. It's got a growing empire. The Industrial Revolution and innovations in that, Britain's really at the forefront. Mm. Uh, the population rises from about 10.5 million in 1801 to 23 million by 1861. Oh, my word. Doubling the population in 50 years. Mm. That's enormous. So this is an incredibly enterprising, fast-moving, technological mm. development period to grow up in. Well, is that, that, that And that's driving that population, or the, the, that causes this uh, well, need? I say, I say the... Well, I guess there's... Chicken and egg situation yeah, yeah. there, but the two are self-serving. And he's very much of an age of the great Victorians. So we've got uh, Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister, and Richard oh, yeah. Cobden, a uh, sort of radical, both born in 1804. Brunel and John Stuart Mill are Darwin. born in 1806. Darwin, Tennyson and Gladstone in 1809. Dickens in 1812. And Victoria herself, 1819. Yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a roll call, isn't it? So that's when a lot of the biggies come along. So he's very much at the centre yeah. of this. So, his personality, okay. you know. <laughs> You've got a smile. Go on. Well, he's, I mean, he inc- must have been an incredible person. His motto was en avant, which is French for get going. Why would he choose French at a time of Napoleonic? Uh, well, we'll maybe come oh, to that. Okay. A bit, bit of backgroundy stuff. Um, he said that he wanted to be the first engineer and example for all future ones. Well, he succeeded there. 
Yeah. In other words, he's got quite a lot of ambition, mm. and he's very vocal about it. He tended to dub all of his projects great, whereas a lot of <laughs> contemporaries would use grand. So it's yep. like the Grand Union Canal, but for Brunel, it's always the great. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't noticed that, but that's true. Uh, yeah, SS Great Britain, though that's mm. a name. <laughs> the uh, Great Western Railway. There we go. There we go. Um, he seems to have been full of energy all the time. People always notice he's got an incredible presence about him. Um, very vibrant, a natural leader. People look to him in a crisis. Um, he got something of a public flair as well. So he seems to have been quite a gifted speaker and negotiator. Because the Victorian age, that's how you kind of sway opinion. Lots of things. You have public meetings, you have meetings with board members, all that sort of stuff. So you've got to be very... A personality. Exactly, very mm. personable. Um, so he's got a certain amount of flair, but he's uh, rather no, uh, more no business, no business, no nonsense when it comes to his business. Right. And all that sort of stuff. Um, but he's incredibly hardworking. He goes at full pace just for hours and hours on end. He never really stops um, and doesn't seem to have much need for sleep. Right. And what, how much are we talking? Uh, well, I mean, he's, he's sometimes working sort of 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, Oh, gosh. Hour days. I I'm, I'm sort of feel like a bit of an expert in sleep these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I could do do a Brunel. But apparently when he does sleep, his brother-in-law noted that uh, his potency in snoring was prodigious. <laughs> <laughs> he was coal-fired fired himself. <laughs> um, despite all of this ambition and uh, sort of raw personality, he does actually suffer from a certain amount of self-doubt and perhaps mm. a slightly... Um, Ooh, what's the word? Not depressed, but um, melancholy. Certain melancholy. Um, so as a young man, his diaries reveal that he was quite dissatisfied with where he was in his life at that period in time. He wrote of um, this need for glory. So he wrote about his building castles in the air. In oh, effect. is that where that phrase comes from? I've heard that before. But So that's why he kind of has to throw himself so much into the work, because he's so desperate to achieve and to be great. Mm. Because he's got this self doubt. So he's not necessarily a very depressive person because he's always doing stuff, but he needs to be doing, he needs to be active, he needs to be right. showing okay. off and impressing. Yes. Um, but it's something that does seem to be with him. In 1827, he wrote in his diary that My love of glory is so strong, even on a dark night riding home, when I pass some unknown person who perhaps does not even look at me, I catch myself trying to look big on my little pony. I often do the most silly, useless things to attract the attention of those I shall never see again. Oh, God, he sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course, at that time, he didn't realise the uh, significance of the phrase, my little pony, would uh, <laughs> undermine his yeah. sense of masculinity, perhaps. So, that was Brunel. Do you remember your favourite Brunel? Was it uh, his escapades in the tunnel? The yeah. collapsing tunnel? The collapsing tunnel where he was so very, very nearly yeah. drowned. And, of course, he went down in the diving bell to go oh, and fix the tunnel. Yeah, that was brilliant. What Pretty a great awesome. chap. All his yeah. stuff with the trains. Uh, and his ships. Got to be the ships. It's got to be the it? ships, yeah. Biggest yeah. ships ever built. Yeah. At the time. Magic. Amazing stuff. So that was Brunel. Really interesting one. It was nice for us to get away from the, I guess, sort of kings and rulers mm. and battles and stuff and actually get a bit more yeah. sort of science and architecture mm. and that sort of stuff. Um, now, after Brunel, we went uh, completely different. We went to Boudicca. Oh, was she next? She was the next one that we did. So this is the uh, sort of British queen who resisted the Romans. This was recorded in your bedroom. This was recorded in my bedroom. I, 
And what I particularly enjoyed, like Bert and Ernie, we still had the same side of the, what we, instead of the desk, it was the bed. Exactly. <laughs> so here is a little introduction to Boudicca. So, yeah, so she's an ancient Briton of the Iceni tribe, who we'll explain more about later, who leads a devastating rebellion against the Roman occupation of Britain in probably the year 60 AD. Oh, that's earlier than I thought. Some say 61. There we go, that's more like it. <laughs> uh, now, the name, of course, mm. often known, still probably by most known, as Boadicea. Yeah. Um, this, as ever, like with Thomas Beckett and the uh, Beckett, yeah. is all the fault of a medieval scribe that just made a bit of a made a bit of an error. So he was reading uh, or transcribing the Roman historian Tacitus, mm. um, who spelt Boudicca with a B-O-U-D-I-C-C-A. That I can see as Boudicca. So he took uh, a U for an A, so instead of Boo, it became Bo. Uh-huh. And then he mistook uh, a C for an E. Yeah, because I was looking, you've got Boudicca... Oh. <laughs> you've got Boudicca books... Um, on the bed here. Yeah. Um, and just as we, you were setting up, I'm not allowed to press buttons, um, <laughs> I looked at the way that was written, and it, there's no way that's Boudicca. No. It's, it's definitely Boudicca. But if you sw- if you had it with two Cs, and you swapped the U for an A, and the second <laughs> C for an E. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was just rubbish at spelling. He just got his spellings wrong, or maybe he couldn't read the writing initially okay. um, but actually historians thereafter struggle for quite a while so we all, we'll see this towards the end when we look at that we've got Vodacea, Bunduka, all sorts of Vodacea? <laughs> Sounds like a phone network In terms of what the uh, name actually means it's, uh, it's a proto-Celtic word Boudica meaning victorious Ooh. so from Buda meaning victory so it's not actually clear whether this was really her name at all yeah or it was just a sort of pseudonym that she was given once she started yeah. showing the Romans who was boss. Right, and no no evidence of any other name, but it seems likely, uh, too much of a coincidence that it's, that's her name. That's the one that the, the Roman historians use, that's right. the one that we assume has to be her mm. name. But, you know, mm. if you were to go back in time and start shouting Boudicca... <laughs> <laughs> See who turns around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she's said to have been of royal uh, ascent... Uh, but her parentage are actually unknown, so we don't know exactly where she comes from, but apparently she's of some kind of royal British mm. stock. And she's the wife and queen of a chap called Prasutagus. He's less well-known, isn't he? Indeed. So he was king of the Iceni tribe, which mm. is sort of modern-day Norfolk, and a bit further afield as well. In my mind... Mm. Now, I know you're going to come on to these, but here's, I've got to share my little bit of knowledge. <laughs> the Iceni and the Trinovantes. Yes. Um... And growing up in Essex and mm. uh, holidaying in Suffolk, um, I'm very proud of the fact that it was the Iceni and the Trinovantes. Because, but I thought it was the Iceni were from Essex and Suffolk, and the Trinovantes were the ones further north. But do they just they? That's the alliance they make. That's we'll the alliance. But yeah, we'll come to it. But the other way around, basically. Okay. So the Iceni are Norfolk coming down a bit into Suffolk. I've got to change my allegiance. Trinovantes are actually the Essex ones. Right. Hmm. I'm thinking of an Essex pun on Trinovantes. Hang on, give me a minute. <laughs> no, I, I've got nothing. If you can think of something, write it in. Uh, now, she, we don't know how old she was. Mm. We'll find that's a bit of a uh, running theme, the <laughs> phrase that don't quite know, um, because her age isn't specified by, by historians. But she has two daughters who required a regency when the father died. Mm. So as the rebellion was in 60 AD, she must have been born in at least 30 AD. Why? 
just to have daughters of that oh, age. Oh, right. Yeah, two of them, yeah. Uh, but not quite old enough to be ruling yeah. in their own right, but old enough that they kind of have a bit of a role. So if you assume that they're teenagers... Yeah, like 16 or something. Yeah, but of course they could have been the youngest surviving members of the family, in which case maybe Boop oh, is, yeah. you know, in her 40s or mm. slightly older. But we're assuming roughly in her 30s. Okay. And now we have a description of her. Jolly good. From Cassius Dio, Roman historian, more on him later. In stature, she was very tall. In appearance, most terrifying. In the glance of her eye, most fierce. And her voice was harsh. A great mass of the tawniest, I read, hair fell to her hips. Around her neck was a large golden necklace. And she wore a tunic of diverse colours over which a thick mantle was fastened with a brooch. I... My drawing of her, mm-hmm. age about six, was <laughs> spot on. So, what you were, uh, I mean, we learned how to pronounce Boudicca, of course, not Bodicea. That was my favourite bit, though, because <laughs> uh, the, the way uh, it transpires that there are, there's two ways of pronouncing the name and two very different functions that those names serve. Mm. It's really fascinating that there's, there's Boudicca and Bodicea, and they, they're they're different. They're the same can... person. One a legend, one a person. Exactly. You sort of treat Boudicca as the historical figure about mm. whom we know a certain amount from mm. the Romans, but there's a lot of uncertainty. But then there's Bodicea, like you said, the legend, where all these various things get put on top of her by different yeah. eras, depending on their view of women in power yeah, and all that sort of stuff. And you have all this Celtic revival stuff in the Victorian era, and she begins to take on a whole new... A whole new meaning, a whole new look. Um, but finally, before we came on to do the Irish Vikings, we did what I think, Ali, you've decided is your favourite episode, special episode so far. It definitely is. I really enjoyed it. I was worried mm. because it was uh, all previously, we've at least, the, we've had a focus. It, we did a special on um, uh, Lord of the Rings, but there were people in it that you could hang a story <laughs> yeah. around. There was a narrative. Whereas the tea, I thought, how on earth are we going to do this? But I absolutely loved it. Uh, so we're going to hear a little clip from that episode. And as I said, it was in a way, it's a bit more episodic in some ways because you've got little sort of bits of how the tea trade affected mm. uh, the British Empire, all sorts of countries worldwide. We've got China, we've got India, mm. all sorts of fun going on. But this is particularly close to Ali's heart, how tea came to England in the reign of Charles II. So the first reference in terms of Europe is with Portugal, fifteen fifty seven. They this... are very much our um, European Chinese men. Yes, they were. They were out there earlier yeah. than us in a lot of ways. So fifteen fifty seven. So this is the Ming era. They established a trading port in Macau, and they spread the words of this Chinese drink, cha or chai. But there's no evidence they actually brought any home with them. Okay. So it's the Dutch in sixteen o seven again in this period, much mm. more outward than uh, perhaps we were, the Dutch East India Company brought the first confirmed shipment of tea to Europe in 1607. It becomes very fashionable in The Hague, and indeed the Dutch generally love their tea. Now, was that because it had sort of some royal backing? These are these th- how the things tend to work. If the king's been... Although there was a republic, wasn't it? No, not well, this point, Well, it's yeah. the holder yeah. thing, wasn't it? Well, yes, I mean, it's interesting. So in France, it was briefly popular. Right. Apparently Louis XIV had a golden teapot. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously, if he was going to have a tea product, <laughs> yeah. <that'd> be... yeah. <laughs> but it never really quite took off yeah. across the country. I suppose they had their wine. 
In Russia, it was offered by uh, the Chinese as a gift to Tsar Michael, in sort of, who was uh, Tsar from 1613 to 45. But the Russian ambassador tried it, didn't like it, and said, nah, don't think bother with that. So yeah. it delayed the uh, import of tea for quite a while. Um, but later on, it was imported via caravan of hundreds of camels in this year-long journey. So right. that's actually one of the the uh, famous blends, along with breakfast and I think afternoon. There's also Russian caravan. Oh, right. Of tea, okay. Thanks to, uh, thanks to this journey. Mm. And weirdly, America kind of gets tea before England. Ho- hold on. Because the Dutch at this point have got New Amsterdam, which would later become New York. Yeah. So since the Dutch have embraced tea before Britain, they send off some tea to New Amsterdam. Okay. So the How Americans odd. actually get their uh, so taste had, buds to it first. They had little tea shops there, um, or coffee houses, I suppose. Well, coffee was before tea, right? Yeah, coffee was already there. So yeah, so there were coffee houses. So there weren't yet tea shops. I don't think there were lots of tea shops in America. It's probably just very limited sort of merchants or mm. apothecaries because people thought of oh, it as an additional yeah. thing early on. Okay. But yes, yeah, so America potentially actually That's started tasting it. What a great Rex fact, as ever. But it does come to England. Oh, yeah. First reference is a man called Richard Wickham in 1615. Now, he is a British East India Company man and the first Englishman to reference it. So he um, requested from their Japanese office a pot of the best sort of chaw. They just, that's it's sort of Chinese whispers, pun the pun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Mundy in 1637, perhaps not amazingly impressed, or perhaps just enjoying the simplicity. Um, he was a traveller and merchant who encountered it in uh, Fujian, and he described it as cha, only water with a kind of herb boiled in it. Yeah. I mean, which is... <laughs> yeah. Gold. It's shiny rock, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we have in 1658 the first ever advert for tea Brilliant. in London. That excellent and by all physicians approved China drink, called by the Chinese cha, by other nations tea, alias tea <laughs> is sold at the Sultaness Head, a coffee house in Sweeting's Rent by the Royal Exchange, London. What is that Chinese drink? Is that what they called it? That China most, drink. That most excellent China drink. That is my new favourite word for it. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you mind if I have another? Certainly. Where certainly. are we? I'll be mother. Okay. But of course, nothing has arrived in 17th century England until it's been uh, tasted by a certain character that uh, you've spent a lot of time oh! with. <laughs> In 1660, Samuel Pepys made an entry in his diary. I did send for a cup of tea, a china drink, of which I had never drunk before. And his thoughts? You know, we're not sure if he actually expands on it, but it's interesting. The fact that he never drank it before suggests it's still something of a curiosity at this time. Yeah, because he was right at the forefront of fashion. Yeah, he's always trying new mm. things. So probably it just came from a Dutch trader, because the East India Company, the British East India Company, wasn't actually trading it at this point. Okay, and Dutchmen around the capital have ever more been going. Do you want to try this? <laughs> Do you want some tea? <laughs> Got some uh, herbs from far away. Blow your mind. <laughs> The reason, however, that tea does take off and Britain does start to invest is thanks to Charles II. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Wife. Oh. Catherine of Braganza. Oh. Catherine of Braganza is a princess of Portugal. Oh, the European and Chinese man. So Charles II, of course, restored the uh, monarchy in 1660 after all that nastiness with Oliver Cromwell. But he had a rather distinct lack of money. Mm. So King John IV of Portugal provided him with a £500,000 dowry in cash 
as well as sugars and spices, the African trading enclave of Tangiers, the right to trade freely to Brazil and the East Indies, the port of Bombay, or Mumbai, and a chest of tea. To just to marry his daughter? <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, okay. Sugar and spice and things nice. They wanted the alliance and Charles needed money and yeah. goodies. He really liked her as well though, didn't he? Well, initially she struggles to fit in a little bit, so apparently 14 British warships escorted Catherine on the Royal Charles from Lisbon to Portsmouth via Cornwall, because of mm. a bit of bad weather. Bells rang out to welcome her in London, but Charles didn't. Oh. Charles that night decided to dine with his heavily pregnant mistress. Nell? <laughs> Not Nell, I think um, oh. uh, Lady Castlemaine, mm. and uh, didn't actually come to meet her for another six days. Well, you know, he's got things to do. And poor old, uh, Catherine was a little bit distressed because there had been a long and stormy crossing. Um, she was feeling a little bit weak, so when she arrived, she asked for a cup of tea. But unfortunately, there wasn't obviously enough tea around, so they yeah. couldn't give her any. So instead, they gave her some beer, um, which uh, <laughs> apparently didn't really help, and she went to bed. <laughs> but hadn't she? Didn't couldn't she have just said, "Look, I know you've got tea. My chest dad's just give me a chest of it." I guess that maybe been sent off elsewhere to be presented to Charles, so there wasn't any actually in the house for her. Um, so Catherine initially struggled to fit into the court. Mm. I mean, when Charles first saw her and observed a slightly odd hairdo, he said, oh, they've brought me a bat. Oh, I thought he said poodle, yep. Um, and it was a rather bawdy court, filled with his sort of harem of mistresses. <laughs> but she does eventually settle in and find her place, and she helps to make drinking tea very much au fait at yeah. court, and among ladies as well as the men. And uh, it also spreads to the literary classes. And as such, in a year later, 1663, Edmund Waller, a man at court, writes her a birthday poem. Oh, dangerous. Venus her myrtle, Phoebus has his bays. Tea both excels, which she vouchsafes to praise. The best of queens, the best of herbs, we owe to that bold nation which the way did show to the fair region where the sun doth rise, whose rich productions we so justly prize. The muse's friend, tea does our fancy aid, regress those vapours which the head invade, and keep the balance of the soul serene, fit on her birthday to salute the queen. So tea very much was her thing, wasn't it? <laughs> it was her thing. So there are lots of uh, different and really fascinating stories around tea from this period, particularly close to Ali's heart, were the tea clippers and, of course, most famously, the cutty sark. And, of course, we actually got to see the cutty sark in person. And I am editing the results of that as we don't speak, but <laughs> this week. And... Uh, Yes, yeah, so thanks to all you beautiful privy councillors, we've got it in beautiful HD. Mm. We do uh, a number of interviews, well, one interview, <laughs> and a number of tours, one tour. But we went to Bosworth as well with the camera, so thank you very much. But yeah, absolutely superb that was. We went behind the scenes before it opened. That's lovely. So I've got to do that before. Yeah. And then got to speak to the curator of Cassie yeah, Sark. So, some of our recent special episodes... You've got the uh, new special coming out very soon on the Vikings in Ireland. Mm. Then it will be uh, James V of Scotland. And in 2018, you will be looking out for Rex Factor, the animated show, because of all your generosity. And meanwhile, keep your eyes peeled on social media and our channel on YouTube, because we're going to get all these films out now, which mm. you can just go ahead and have a little look at. Me and yeah. Graham, in person, having an awful lot of fun. Exciting times afoot at Rex Factor <laughs> Studios. See you next time. Cheerio! Cheerio!